0: Summer starts here with the iNua collection. We've handpicked the finest locations to stay so you can relax in style. Whether you're looking for scenic parks, romantic breaks, or luxury spa getaways, you'll find this at any of our hotels across Ireland. Find out more at iNua.ie. With amazing midweek offers, come and stay at the iNua collection this summer. The iNua collection hotels, where the only thing missing is you. Visit iNua.ie to book now.
1: In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.
2: What's it like to be back to school today?
3: Good, because I wanted to play on yard and have
4: all my friends.
2: How does it feel to be back? To be back to school?
4: And um, good because you
0: get to see all the teachers. We get to have loads of fun.
2: Back in the school uniform, back to school.
0: Excellent and you're able to see all your friends and play on the yard with the football. I love Ryan and I wanted to get back to play with my friends.
2: And what did you get up to at home? What was it like being homeschooled, doing class through the laptop? Horrible. What was horrible about it?
5: Everything. I'm happy to be back at school. I only wanted to see everyone. The homeschool was okay. Just okay? Just okay.
2: And you're here in the playground at the moment, and you're all trying to socially distance. How have you found it?
5: Definitely not easy. Seeing your friends.
2: That's the best thing. Seeing your friends.
5: Yeah, I'm back to be
0: at school because of my friends. Going to school is the best thing to do. Put up your hand if you want. It's to horrible being back in school because you have to go up by seven o'clock every morning.
6: Home school
0: was the best because it's much shorter than than normal school. Because
5: you get to sit on a comfy chair.
7: Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, over the last few months, have you ever wondered to yourself whether the COVID-19 pandemic has instigated some problematic behaviour when it comes to human rights? Well, take a listen
5: to this. Could you give us some examples then of how uh, COVID is being used to further uh, shrink people's human rights?
0: Yes. So, uh, as you said, um, we have the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, writing in The Guardian earlier this week about what he sees as this pandemic of human rights abuses that's followed the COVID pandemic. His point is, is that this started off as a a public health emergency and has now morphed into a human rights crisis as the ripple effects of the virus um, continue to kind of wreak devastation on the world's most uh, vulnerable communities. And what the most uh, I think kind of If you look at the data, uh, I think it's quite startling how many countries across the world have used COVID-19 as a kind of cover to uh, impose some really restrictive and repressive measures on civilian populations. Some analysis by Human Rights Watch that was done a few weeks ago showed that there are 83 countries in total that have used COVID-19 to attack free speech. We've got 51 countries around the world that have uh, used COVID to, um, to pass emergency laws that allow them to detain and prosecute critics uh, of the government. Um, Twelve countries have blocked the media from reporting on the pandemic. Um, we have 17,000 people who've been arrested and detained in China for uh, what the authorities say is spreading misinformation about COVID. Um, in Algeria, all street protests have been banned. Um, and also, you've seen a rise in really startling levels of things like gender based violence against women, which uh, are crimes that are being Uh, kind of either ignored by the authorities or are happening under the cover of COVID lockdowns that are not investigated. A really shocking figure, 1,423 women in Peru have simply gone missing in 2020. So, you know, he does... You know, there is this really bleak data out there that does show that the pandemic, you know, isn't just a public health emergency, that this has really, um, you know, pushed the world to the brink of a kind of human rights catastrophe as well.
5: Yeah. And I suppose whenever whenever there is hard times or relatively hard times, it it always hits the poor and more vulnerable uh, the hardest. And um, so so, uh, the poverty levels, I mean, as in global poverty levels, have gone up this year.
0: They have. Um, the latest data on this um, uh, that came out just a few weeks ago show that there are now 124 million people living in extreme poverty, and that's classed as people living on pound thirty or below a day. Um, and workers collectively lost $3.7 trillion in earnings during the pandemic. Um, you know, we are seeing a return of extreme poverty levels that we haven't seen for two decades. So, you know, and as I said, we're only really at the beginning of this. You know, the economic impact of this is only just starting. So there's some really, really concerning signs that, you know, that this is going to be absolutely devastating for generations to come.
5: Yeah. And and I suppose one of these uh, other aspects of us that might necessarily occur to people is there's such a, a global uh, demand for PPE equipment that, in certain parts of the world, is being produced by something that's close to slave labour.
0: Yeah, so we've done some some reporting on this. Um, others have too. Uh, if you think about how quickly um, these PPE supply chains had to be put in place following the pandemic, it really bypassed a lot of the normal checks and balances that would be in place to try and ensure that exploited and slave labour was not, you know, within or lurking at the bottom of those supply chains. Uh, already in Malaysia. Um, it's been uh, there's been some really worrying signs like some of the really big surgical glove um, companies have been linked to terrible exploitation in the factories making um, making rubber gloves that are used here in the UK and across the world Uh, we actually did a a five-month investigation which actually exposed that there were factories in China using North Korean slave labor that were producing um, PPE overalls that were then being sent to the UK and used in hospitals so you know those those Right. <laughs> Those kind of extreme forms of, of exploitation are, are have been found in these PPE supply chains that have been put in place very quickly. Um, under again, under these emergency COVID legislations, the home that the, the, the government here in the UK uh and also in parts of Ireland have basically put in place measures that will bypass um, any of those usual uh kind of steps that they have to take to ensure mm. that those that PPE is be, is coming here with all the usual kind of, you know, measures
7: to ensure that slave labour isn't part of that. Some shocking insights there from journalist and editor Annie Kelly from Moncrief.
8: Marie says, spot on Matthew. Matthew got in touch earlier on 1894 106 to defend some of those in attendance. Marie says, Matthew, you hit the nail on the head. The majority of people do not support violence, but people are fed up of lockdown and the issue is being confused. Someone else says, Kieran, you you're some bio. There was genuine people in that protest who weren't conspiracy nutters but who were there because their business have been destroyed and because of restrictions and they can't cope anymore. No mention of them, I noticed. Siobhan Wexford says, you shouldn't label all people anti-vax. I'm not anti-vax but I'm just cautious about this one. With no long-term studies on efficacy and side effects, people should be allowed to ask questions and there are many without being labelled anti-vax. Someone else who just signs their text Anon from Lucan says, I feel it's unfair of the media at large the way they have put all the protesters on Saturday due to the COVID, deniers, anti-vaxxers, etc. In the process, they're muzzling most reasonable people's obvious concern and unhappiness and reservations about the government's restrictions, some of which are ridiculous, draconian and mentally damaging in the broader sense. So the media is doing the government's work for them in silencing any opposition to these measures. I'll be surprised if this is even read out as normally my messages never are. Well, there you go. And on from Lucan. One more. Lee says, I don't know why you didn't mention the radio and television are not even used by people under 27. They're defunct. They use social networking sites. So how do you debate the big issues and inform and educate those people?
9: Mihal, stay with us. I just want to bring Francis in too. Francis is in um, Dunlo in Donegal as well this afternoon. Um, Francis, Francis. You, so you're losing out in the, the, the branch there as well?
10: Yeah, it's a big blow for the for the area and the town. Uh it's another service, as has quite rightly said, that's gone from the rural community. Um and he said too that we, we were fighting post offices not that long ago and a lot of them did go by the wayside, but the one here in Dunlow still remains. Um Bank of Ireland has been in existence in Dunlow my total lifetime so and that's not the day yesterday, but um it's a it's You'd wonder why Bank of Ireland and the profits that they've made in the last, well, 2019 profits anyway, that they're not operating at a loss. What's behind, to me, what is behind mm-hmm. this move? So where, you know, where, is the, is
9: the, where is your closest
10: branch now, Francis? Well, the, the closest branch, if, if the Dunlow, one go, Dunlow Bank of Ireland goes, yeah. the nearest one would be Leather And how far, and like, what's the distance there? Well, you're talking 50 kilometres an hour, you know. Now, So we, your closest we do have bank,
9: IP. yeah, sorry, Francis, your closest bank, yeah. if you're a Bank of Ireland customer, you're telling me if you're currently living in dunlow your closest branch is going to be Letterkenny, 50 minutes away. That's
10: correct. That's correct. You know, Bank of Ireland have been corralling people into their... Internet banking and online banking since yeah. the crash. And look, to be fair, you know? Francis,
9: I have to say I was reading some of the Bank of Ireland statement yesterday, um, and one of the figures that they quoted was that, in terms of the people that have signed up to the online banking in recent times, in the over sixty fives, your half of the people, yeah. apologies, that have signed up to the online banking, I should say, are in the over sixty five. So people, people are doing it. They're they're moving online.
10: The, 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 yes, but they were corralled into doing it. There's a lot of people I've met. Three people this morning who haven't a clue about internet banking. What's What's going to happen to them? And they're not. They're not the 80 year olds. They're 60 plus year olds. You know. So there's a gap there of of uh, a cohort of people that have no clue of internet banking. So what are they supposed to do? Yeah.
9: Is that something? Michal, change you're... bank. Yeah. Change
10: bank. Change. Well, thank God for the credit unions and. Uh, the post offices because um, you know where would we be now without them?
9: mehol you you're still with us here as well you're a local independent councillor in the area. Um, like Francis raises a fair point there and it was something we heard from callers here too on Lunchtime Live yesterday, people joining us on the show um, and one man in particular I, I remember Mike, you know he he was an, an older man who spoke to us about just this was the difficulty with um, moving online. Like it... It is difficult for people.
11: It is difficult for people. It's very, very difficult for people. And the other thing that is also difficult for people is that that we don't have rural broadband. We don't have a, a service right. like maybe. And I and I hate the whole argument. I hate the whole argument between uh, rural and urban. But but and 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 the bigger towns in Letchy you might have. Uh, Four or five providers where we in the west of the county like the rest of the west of the country aren't served so to ask us to do our online banking uh, it's, it's an extremely difficult thing, but but there's look, is this how we want to organise our society? That we sit behind screens and we touch buttons and not have that interaction and if COVID has taught us anything, it has taught us the importance of our neighbours, of our communities and social interactions with other human beings. And and this again, and I keep saying it, this is nothing to do with community or individuals or people. Mm. This is about pure and utter greed of capitalism and this is what the banking well, system is. He- all about profit. I don't know if it's about capitalism now. Well, it is capitalism and it's driven by capitalism. Right. I have a text uh, in
7: Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live.
4: Men must speak up about the grief of losing a child. That's the message of our next guest, Ian Lawton, whose son, Hank, died just one day old in February 2011. Uh, Ian, thank you for uh, speaking to us this morning. Uh, Could you take us back to that time, Ian, uh, and tell us a little bit about what happened to baby Hank?
12: Hank was born on the 1st of February, 2011, 10 years ago. And it was, as any father, any parent can imagine, one of the greatest days in your life. It's uh, a very special and and time for celebration. Um, But sadly, Hank was taken to the special care baby unit immediately after he was born. And the very next day... Uh, he died. Uh, he didn't make it, and uh, this is something that happens every single day in in special care baby units all over the country, and it's a sad reality. Uh, but something we, as a society, brush under the carpet, as it were. Um, as you know, that uh, when when a spouse loses a partner, they they become a widow widow or a widower. When a when a child loses their parents they become orphaned but there's no language for a bereaved parent uh, particularly a parent uh, of of infant loss um, so we don't exist
4: look it, it what you went through is is as you say it's it's every parent's wor- worst nightmare and i think yeah. everybody listening today particularly those who are parents can can uh, understand how, how difficult um, and relate to how difficult it, it, it must have been um, tell us about the, the the period afterwards in terms of the period of bereavement and uh, you, you encountered some obviously some some difficulties
12: yeah I mean uh, I went on a very self-destructive path um, I found comfort in in food um, you know it became uh, almost like an addiction to me Um in the aftermath of, of Hank's death, um, the, the only place I really found comfort was through comfort eating. You know, you'd go to wait for people to go to sleep in the house and you'd sneak out to the chipper and you'd order so much food that you'd ask for an extra fork because you're too embarrassed to admit that that's all for you. And then you feed yourself, you know, at, at late at night. And that that adds up, that adds up you know, I became morbidly obese. I was, I stopped weighing weighing myself at around 25 stone, which is 350 pounds. You know, I was on, I was on a, you know, a course to to death.
4: So what changed? What was there? Was there one moment? I I know you went to a a men's bereavement group. Was that, was Mm. that the key Mm. turning point for you, Ian?
12: Um, I was sitting at a table with, with other fathers. We sat down, um we we all told our stories and what I realized at that meeting was that we were all telling the exact same story it was just with different characters names and events you know it was but it was the first time in seven years where I didn't feel alone you know and uh, I left that meeting with a smile on my face and really honestly felt like uh, a weight had lifted it was it was profound
4: It, it it sounds absolutely profound um You began to run. Tell us a little bit about that.
12: Yeah, um, well, that was that was completely, completely by mistake. I had never intended to run. I was out one day walking my dog uh, around a bog near near to where I live. And um, I just found myself running and I was elated. And uh, I started laughing out loud while I was running like this aegis alone on a bog with his dog (laughs) laughing like a fool running. And I went to uh, I went to the sports shop later that afternoon and I bought the cheapest pair of running shoes I could find that were on sale. I put on the shoes and started teaching myself how to run by running for 10 seconds at a time and then walking for 30 seconds, running for 10 seconds. And I built up to the 5k distance over about three weeks. Then just over two years later, I just completed 10 marathons in 10 days. Wow, that's uh, pretty extraordinary. Yeah, finishing
7: on, on Hank's 10th birthday. Ultramarathon fundraiser Ian Launton from News Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it,
1: with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.
13: Protocol or no protocol, I think Northern Ireland is still British. I mean, that's the end game for everybody that Northern Ireland remains British. The protocol is, is the first stepping stone across the River the Irish unity. Um, since, I mean, it's 100 years old this year, in Northern Ireland. And since our conception, this is a, it, it, it's the dodgiest it's been for us as a large union. What's the alternative to the Northern Ireland Protocol, then? Northern Ireland leaves with the rest of the UK. What's, what, what's the issue? Yeah, but Northern Ireland voted to remain. It wasn't a regional vote. I mean, I, I, I would to turn around and say that in England, London voted to remain, so we don't have a border around London. We're going to have a border around each consistency that, 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 that voted Remain, remain. We're going to break it down to regions, break it down then to the consistencies within the regions. East Belfast voted leave. So, I mean, where I'm from, we voted leave. Is there real anger in the loyalist community now, and could that anger spill over to violence? There is anger. There is anger. But as regards violence, the threat of violence has been seen to pay. It paid for the Irish government, it paid for the EU. I mean, why didn't the the, the rest of the, the e, e, EU and Ireland just say, "There's a hard border in Ireland, work with the threat and violence"? It was moved. So as regards the threat of violence, I think the threat of violence at the moment has, has been mouthed off by the DUP. The DUP are politicians. I don't think they're capable of violence. If they're threatening it, well. Maybe they're just playing the same game that Leo played. But if loyalists are forced into the corner here and the Northern Ireland protocol doesn't change, then could there be violence then? If you turn around your man and say, like, you don't want to take his country off him, like, you don't want to take his nationality off him, could there be
5: violence? It would depend on the individual, wouldn't it? I'm British, you know, I've always been. I've been, in, I've been here from Northern Ireland all, all my life. You know, it's, it's my British identity. You know, and that, that's, I, I feel it's very important to me. There is talks about the border poll, and there's talks about the, the whole island going United, United Ireland, things like that. You know, this, this thing about United Ireland, it's definitely not something that I want to entertain. You know, it's, it's, it's change. you know. Obviously, when you have something, you, know, someone, you don't change it yourself. Someone's coming in trying to make a change, and you don't get the option on it. That's, that's the, the upsetting part. You know, it'd be different if you had your own Say, so, I, I want to do that, but we're actually being told. And that that's that's annoying that part of it. The anger and the loyalists in East Belfast, yes, I would say that. But it's, just, it's annoying.
13: It's, it's just in your head. It's taking wee bits of your culture away. Could that anger boil yeah. over, though? Well, it could, if it keeps on going the way it's going. So violence yeah. could be an option? Well, I don't think so, but if it has to come down that way, that's the way it has to go. If there was violence, so who would it be who would it be aimed towards? I don't know. It's just the local community people are pissed off. I would say. I would, I would go out and for it, and that's good, cause it's doing my head on.
4: So Barry, a real sense of upset and anger there. You can hear that from the people that you spoke to. Uh, maybe it could lead to protest, but is a return to violence actually a real possibility? Do you believe?
14: Well, Pat, there has been graffiti daubed on walls in different places in Northern Ireland in the last few weeks, and I saw some of this myself. For example, in Fergus earlier this month, graffiti was painted on a wall stating, the Good Friday Agreement is done, time for war. Or in the Sandy Row area where I was in Belfast, I came across graffiti stating Sandy Row, British till I die, or British till we die, was a large target sign on the wall. While there was also threatening graffiti, as we know about, aimed towards uh, the Tannis Ali of Radcar recently. But This is only graffiti. It's not actual violence. However, earlier this week, the offices of SDLP, MLA, Nicola Mallon in North Belfast and Sinn Féin MP Paul Maskey in West Belfast were targeted. So there does seem to be an escalation and to be more and more unrest growing. And I've been speaking to an ex-loyalist paramilitary, and he told me that if the Irish sea border is not scrapped, then there will be a return to violence. You
2: know, I so when I got involved with loyalist paramilitaries myself, it was around the time of the Drumcree protests, and there was anger there, and it 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 was uh, there was frustration, there was annoyance. Um, but w- when you look at the bigger picture again, it, it was it was just parades, it was banned parades, it was attacks on our culture. This is literally lifting Northern Ireland out of the UK. Um, and pivoting it towards Dublin and towards um, Europe. So this isn't just loyalists, this isn't just Sandy Row or the Shankill Road. I've heard people, business people, uh, people, law-abiding citizens, talking about is now the time where there needs to be loyalist violence in order for us to, um, to keep Northern Ireland's place in the UK.
15: Barry White reporting for The Pat Kenny Show. In Gordon Elliott's statement, he apologized and he conceded that after an initial viewing of the photo, you might think it's a callous and staged photo, but nothing he says could be further from the truth. So the explanation he gave, if you hadn't heard or read his statement earlier, is, I quote, I was standing over the horse waiting to help with the removal of the body, in the course of which, to my memory, I received a call. Without thinking, I sat down to take the call. As for the gesture he makes in the picture, he says, hearing a shout from one of my team, I gestured to wait until I was finished. And he accepted that this explanation will not allay the concerns of many people, Richie.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I, I read the statement last night when it came out and I thought it was quite poor. I don't, I didn't think there was, I didn't think there was enough of an, an effort made to accept the optics of that photo. Um, I, I, you know, it, it's his explanation of it. I don't know how much credence we can put in it. Um, but like Adrian mentioned there, this now goes far beyond racing. There, The people I know who don't talk about the sport or would have no interest in the sport now will associate horse racing with, uh, it's that thing where your man sat on the dead horse. They don't care where, they don't care how, they don't care about his reputation, they don't care how many races he's won or how many big races he's won. This is the prism through which Gordon Elliott will now be viewed to a vast swathe of the population, um, both in racing and without and of the general public as well of how they view racing as a sport as a whole and it's kind of incumbent on the uh, the authorities to deal with this properly. He was allowed to have uh, runners and know today here at home and I'm hearing from Mike Vince this evening who would know about these things saying uh, the British Horse Racing Authority will not allow Gordon Elias to race horses in Britain whilst the Irish authorities investigate that image that appeared on social media over the weekend. So the British Horse Racing uh, authorities are definitely wanting to keep him at arm's length until this comes to its conclusion however that's going to land but there's no way that in anyone's eyes that he can escape strong censure for this because it's just like I I, I can't see even from his explanation in his statement I can't see how without thinking he sat down he's sitting on a dead horse It's like he knows well what he's doing in his head if he's sitting down to take a call it's not as if he's sitting on a wall it's not as if he's sitting on a log out in his yard he knows well enough where he is. He knows what he's doing. And further to that as well, the person who thought it was appropriate to t- take a photo like that and then circulate it, I hope they're properly dealt with as well in all of this because like, it shows you what might be in his employ on his yard again, you know?
15: Yeah. That thought has crossed my mind as well. It wasn't addressed in his statement. But so, and we'll tease it out later on We have Johnny Ward and Richard Forrestal coming on. But so, his explanation is his explanation. And... I agree with you. I don't know how much credence that should be given, frankly, um, was my opinion when I read it last night. But then there's a point not addressed in his statement, and it speaks of the culture in the yard Mm. and the reaction of those around him. They are not all pointing at Gordon Elliott saying, Gordon, without thinking, to use his phrase, you've absentmindedly sat on a dead horse. There's a gentleman next to him with his arms folded, looks pretty relaxed. And then one of them deems this a photo opportunity. One of them calls Elliot's attention. That person then takes the picture. That person then shares it online or somebody close to that person shares it online. Elliot's the CEO here. He sets the culture. And a member of his staff in his company felt it was on safe territory to take that photo. So Mm. there are now question marks over the culture in the art, Adrian, I put it to you.
1: Yeah, well, we we don't know who took the photograph, Joe. That's the it's pure be pure speculation to say that it it maybe it was a member of the staff. Maybe nobody knows. That's 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 uh, and you know maybe it'll come out at some point or another. Who knows? But I'm I, suspecting uh, it
15: wasn't a total stranger.
1: I, I would I would say you're right. I would say you're right. But whether that makes it a member of staff or not, who knows? Fair point. Um, so so we'll see. And and look at
15: that needs to be established. The
1: the, 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 the culture the culture is a fair point but who took and spread the photograph in the context of what's going on, as far as I'm concerned, is not the story oh, here. No, no, like, no. Sorry, it's a big part
15: yeah. of the story, actually. It's a big part of the story. That's the atmosphere there. There's a dead horse there. That's the atmosphere.
1: No, but I mean, you, that that's assuming that it's it's a member of staff who took the photograph. I, I have no idea. It may or may not have been. If it was, I agree. You're right. There's a question about the culture there. I think that, that question exists regardless. From off the ball... It might not be
4: the right time I might not be the right one But there's something about us I want to say Cause there's something between us anyway I might not be the right one It might not be the right time there's something about us, I've got to do some kind. Can-
7: Wonderful Daft Punk, as heard on The Tom Dunn Show.
16: came out of the church, a few of our neighbours were standing there and even the tears are coming to my eyes now. I'm sorry, who did you lose? Um, my aunt, I'm, I'm a, very close, a very close aunt, my godmother. And, you know, it was difficult, difficult because we do funerals in Ireland
2: very well. And how come we're so good at funerals and the fact that that's been snatched from us during this pandemic, that we perhaps can't do that send off? How hard was that for you and your family?
16: It was difficult. You couldn't have the same freedom, I suppose, <laughs> because we're all restricted. This was a church down in rural Ireland. Um, it wasn't online. Um, they, didn't you know, have, the, they, they didn't have the facility to, to, to broadcast the mass or to tape it for people overseas. Difficult to find the words, but it wa- it was very intimate. But not having friends and family there you know was difficult even though you know pe- people find ways around it like people lined the, the the road on the way to the church because they couldn't come to the house people were standing outside the church when we came out just nodding to
2: us so people did try and show their respects and pay their respects in any socially distanced way they could
16: absolutely and i'm being irish i think we're very resourceful in that respect rip.ie is is very good in that respect they have started you know having a condolence page so it's very handy for you can't go to a funeral they're all private now but you can leave a message for the family or friends or whoever it is which is really lovely you know and the messages we got were were wonderful and a great source of consolation to us
6: i've did a funeral myself personally for a lady whose mother had passed away and whose father was in hospital on a COVID ward in hospital she was an only daughter and she was in new jersey in, in the usa and I was the only one at the funeral, and myself and my colleagues. And it was it was very, very difficult, very, dif- uh, very difficult for that girl and her husband and her children in New Jersey watching it online. And I did, did another funeral for mum uh, and dad. They both died within a few days of one another. And we had both coffins in the church together. Again, family in Australia, family in Canada. And nobody here, only one daughter and her family. Heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. And then, you know, a young mother, lovely young woman recently, mother of three. It should have been a a massive funeral, but only six could attend. It was her father and her sister and her husband and her three children. Like all the extended family had to be outside or at home at their own houses watching. It was just so sad so sad.
16: Grief is is something personal anyway you have to go through that and it's something you have to process. The thing of an Irish funeral does give you that sense of camaraderie or whatever the the good send-off and so on and so forth and of course what is it about Ireland Your, your standing in society or your worth in the community is um, it can reflect, be judged on
2: the number of priests exactly. on the
16: altar. judged by the number of the priests on the altar or judged by the attendance at the funeral, how big was the funeral and so on and so forth. So it's sad that, you know, we, we've had all sorts of restrictions in other respects that we have had to come to terms with. But I think that's the one thing that was snatched from us and that we've, you know, we've had to put up with.
6: Nobody does funerals like the Irish and and, and nobody does debt like the Irish. But for the last 12 months, they have not been able to come out and console their friends and neighbors, their families. Yesterday I did a funeral just down the road here and the whole neighborhood was out saying goodbye. So they were standing outside they the house? They were standing outside social distance, they were all standing outside their own gates. And this has happened several times over the last 12 months, where people have, have, been, have come out and, and paid their farewell the best way they possibly can, while adhering to the guidelines. My name is Mary Conniff, and I'm branch manager of Massey Brothers Funeral Directors at Temple Oak Village. I'm also on the board of the Irish Association of Funeral Directors. It's been a difficult time since this time last year, Uh, we were thrown into something that we had never experienced before in in all the years and I've talked to people who's in the business a lot longer than me and they have never come across anything like this before or having to deal with families in such difficult circumstances. Families are coming from a very different place to us right now and they have to deal with the restrictions and guidelines imposed upon them. And We have to manage those also and yet try and carry out a, the most dignified funeral possible for that family and for their loved one.
7: Henry McKean reporting. On Sunday, Talking History explored the life and legacy of the great Ernest Shackleton. Here's Patrick Egan and biographer Michael Smith.
4: There's a huge interest in the Shackleton story and there's a huge interest in applying life lessons from the Shackleton story.
17: Yes, good evening. It it, it is a a remarkable life in many ways, but of course you you can't escape the the reality that this is a very modern phenomenon. The idea that Shackleton has always been this this hero and people writing books about things like his leadership is completely different to the reality. For almost 50 years after his death, he was a really marginalised figure in history. This is a very new phenomenon. And in, in some respects, it's, it's, I find it quite uh, funny that he's being lauded um, by sort of business schools and thing, in America in particular, for his, his sort of management, he, he really, in business terms, he couldn't run a bath. He was absolutely hopeless. But get him on the ice, and now you're talking about a completely different character. Um, <clears throat> and I think, as a biographer, the, the thing which leaps out at you about Shackleton is that there were, in effect, two Shackletons, and I don't mean for a second to suggest that he was schizophrenic. He wasn't. But the man at home was completely different to the man on the ice. On the ice, he was assured, he was calm, he was measured, and he inspired people to do things um, which they might not otherwise do. Um, His men loved him to bits, but at home he was a completely different character. You know, his, his business ventures, as I mentioned, were a complete failure. His marriage was difficult, to say the least, had a string of affairs. Um, every business venture that he tried fell apart. And And yet, by the 1980s, he suddenly comes back into vogue. And it's almost, in historical terms, as though society couldn't live with two great polar explorers, that Captain Scott, in many respects, dominated the first part of the 20th century, and Shackleton has now replaced him and come along as the man we all turn to. But he is unquestionably a compelling figure, and in my view, one of the great explorers of all time.
4: And it's fascinating the way you describe the two Shackletons there, the, the person who you could trust when you are on the ice, but who you wouldn't take your eyes off him if he was visiting your wife, or if he was uh, managing your business, <laughs> or if you are in partnership with him.
17: Well, it was said that you could trust Shackleton with your life, but not your money or your wife. Um, and in many respects, that, that, that was that was true. But like I said, you have to always bear in mind, and from the biographer's point of view, he, he is absolutely wonderful character to delve into because there were so many parts. He was a man of huge contradictions and paradoxes.
7: Fascinating stuff there from Talking History with Patrick Agan. And of course, you can listen to the full Shackleton programme on Newstalk.com.
1: In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk.
8: Bertie, don't go anywhere. Gary Breen is on the line as well. Gary, as a former Irish international, what would it mean to you to see uh, the country host World Cup matches?
18: Yeah, well, it would be huge. It really would. Obviously, Bertie's talking about the politics involved. And I have no doubt there'll be a lot of that. But as a player, I can... As soon as I heard that um, potential announce, announcement today that this could happen in the future, I just would think it as a young player and... The dream of playing for Ireland, putting on the green shirt, of course, that's massive. But can you imagine doing that at a World Cup in Ireland? I mean, that is something to really aim for, to really like focus on as such. So it is so exciting. I understand that there's so much work to be done in terms of working out the feasibility of it. Of course, there is in terms of the financial ramifications, whether or not um, there'd be a legacy after it. The problems that we've seen major sporting tournaments all over the world have had significant problems. Others have, have done great. So all that has to be worked out. But just when that announcement came this morning, my immediate reaction was, "Wow!"
8: Yeah, for, obviously, for, for anyone who's lucky enough to play international football, your 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 hope, your your dream is to play at these big tournaments. Yeah. What what would it mean for an Irish team to be playing uh, in Ireland at a World That'd Cup? Be,
18: it would be massive. Because listen, we've seen the disappointment of, and in terms of not being able to play in the Euros. Obviously, Covid's had a massive bearing on that anyway. But when you, when you're dreaming of playing for Ireland and pulling on that green jersey, that that's the ultimate goal to play for Ireland. But that dream always, in my mind, focused around being at a World Cup, playing in the World Cup for Ireland and to do that on home soil. It's just it would just be the absolute pinnacle of any player's career. Yeah,
8: Bertie, there has been some criticism uh, from some quarters that, look, that, you know, that there will be upfront financial investment needed uh, to host the World Cup. And meanwhile, you've got serious problems in the League of Ireland, and that's where we should be investing that money.
19: Uh, no, I, I think t- t- two different things, Kieran, uh, in my view. I agree with Gary. I mean, listen... If if we we never would have had the Aviva, we wouldn't have Crow Park, um, we wouldn't have a kids playground. If 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 people always start looking at where else you can put the money, um, you know if we we are a, a, a sovereign country, we're a republic, um, we're working with other associations, uh, we're talking about nine years away. We you know we we should be in there full steam having a go. Um, it won't be easy once we realise that, but and uh, there's there's no. Reason, I mean, we 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 get you know something like ten million tourists into the country. Uh, anyway, we're well able to handle these things, and I think with a good with a good run in, it w- we'd be well able to handle what's in it. So we should look positive, and it would, as Gary said, it would do wonders for, um, for for underage football. It 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 would, you know, that's where we we seem to be having a lot of difficulties in recent years. And you know, wouldn't that give a, a huge lift to a, to a whole rising generation? So uh, I I only see positives in in putting our shoulder to the wheel and seeing where we can get.
7: Kieran Cuddy there from the hard shoulder. On Saturday, legendary film producer David Putnam joined John Fardy on Screen Time.
20: And then, believe it or not, last night I watched your Oscar acceptance speech. Uh, for Chariots of Fire uh, which was a nice piece of cinema or sorry well, that was a nice piece of cinema but it was a nice piece of YouTube for anyone want to watch and what, what struck me was you kind of seemed humbled that a, a, a kind of European slash English film had, had done so well in America, and you were, you know, the toast of Hollywood that night. Was was that your feeling at the time? That's what I I got when I watched it last night, that it was a Cinderella story you weren't expecting to have the life it had.
21: You know, it's very interesting. I I absolutely wasn't expecting it. I had no speech prepared, nothing. Um, And uh, I think probably dazed and confused would have been a better way of describing (laughs) my my frame of mind. Uh, I just remember uh, i absolutely shocked when um, my, the uh, chariots was called out. I really was, uh, and I managed to get up the stage. I was most, I was terrified of slipping or looked like very kind of slippery steps. And then I stood there, this is absolutely true, ridiculous. But I'm looking out this audience and waiting to work out what I'm gonna say. And I looked out at the podium and everything had looked brilliant from the audience's point of view. But the podium had a piece of, 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 of velvet on it and the velvet was crooked. And the, what was actually going through my mind at that moment? Isn't it weird? They spent all this money on this extraordinary um, occasion, and no one could have straightened up the velvet on <laughs> the stadium. That honestly is what I was thinking. And where the word Cinderella came from, I have no idea. I mean, that's you know, God's
20: good. Yeah, it just. It popped into my head. It it worked well, though. Uh, But, you know, that movie, again, has taken on a life of all sorts of places. I've had people on this show when we talk about their favourite movies mentioning it. And, of course, there's the music and all that. But I guess it's come full circle in that it appears to be Joe Biden's favourite movie. Now, I I know your politics vaguely. You don't strike me as a Trump supporter. That must please you.
21: It absolutely delights me. I mean, I got a. It was quite extraordinary. My inbox just one morning kind of flooded with with uh, emails from friends in the States saying, "Did you know this is Joe Biden's favorite film?" Now, I don't know if this takes the gloss off it a little bit, John, but it was also Ronald Reagan's favorite film.
7: <laughs> David Putnam from Screen Time, and of course, you can tune in to John every Saturday evening from six till seven. And the book does go through
0: lots of ways in which we can practice self-love ourselves and and, and alter our our state in many ways and, and, and feel better. But what's your take on looking in the mirror and saying, I love you?
3: I think it is terrifying for most people. And most people will find it very difficult to even just look at themselves in the mirror without looking for flaws. And it's almost, again, conditioning. You know, we all do it. We look in, go, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, my hair, my wrinkles, all, et cetera. And it's it's like, that's what we do. We look in the mirror and we see what can we fix? What's wrong with us? And one of the, the exercises in the book is the two minute mirror uh, exercise where I ask the reader to simply just look at themselves and two minutes, it doesn't sound that long, but it is actually 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 quite long when you're doing nothing because we're so used to you know being so busy and you literally just look into your own eyes and stay when it gets uncomfortable that's when you stay and I've seen this so often with my clients over the years is that when they practice this their own self-esteem really starts to increase and their own ability to make eye contact with other people is also much much better because we feel more at ease in ourselves and that's essentially what allows us to feel at ease around other people and so it's a way of connecting without um criticizing without with letting go of that and that you know those thoughts will be there but when you stay that little bit longer you should try it claire just stay and look and let those let those noise of the you know the critical thoughts start to slow down and a lovely kind of peace and serenity um, can come, but it takes practice. And I think that's a really important point to make. Um, Niall Breslin, who, who wrote the forward for the book, was very, very uh, insightful in the sense that he, he really encourages the reader to engage with it. And he talks about how it's not the shortcut, but you're taking the scenic route. And I think that's really important for this type of genre of, of book, self-help, is that it's got to be clear that, you know, it's as much about what you put in, you know, there is no, as much as I'd love to to wave a magic wand, it requires that commitment. It requires that effort, but like any relationship, you know, you have to work on it. If you want to have a good relationship with your friend, your partner, your child, you need to put in the effort and you need to put in the time. And then that relationship will flourish and it's the same. And it's true for ourselves, basically. Some
7: fascinating insights there from clinical hypnotherapist Fiona Brennan from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune in to Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now a classic email sent into So You Pink An Adult. Have a great weekend.
5: I know this is completely irrational and it's only because he's the only person I've spent time with in the last 12 months but my husband's chewing is actually going to drive me to commit an act of violence. He has a clicky jaw that manages to be louder than the TV and it's all I can hear and then he chews with a mixture of open and closed mouth which adds to the whole irritating experience. We're both at home at the minute. Eating with him has honestly become impossible so I've managed to get it down to eating with him once a day. I get up earlier so I can have breakfast alone and I'll wait for him to have lunch so I can eat in peace afterwards. I can't avoid dinner, however, and now it's like my ears are waiting for the sound to assault them. And then there's the snacking. He has never taken any kind of constructive criticism, well, and I'm not sure there is much he can do about this bar close his bloody mouth when chewing, but I'll be accused of nagging again. If I say anything, please help. If lockdown is until May, I don't think my sanity will survive. uh, There is, though, there is... uh, Um, There is a thing called misophonia, which is you you just can't stand the sound of people chewing. Uh, It's a real condition, so (laughs) it may be that. Or she just hates her husband. Declan, which one do you think it
12: is?
14: (laughs) Pick up your phone while driving, and you might need to be picked up from work. Break the speed limit, and you could be breaking plans with your mates. Leave L or N plates off your car and you could be left getting taxis for the next six months. So ask yourself, is it really worth it? Seven penalty points over three years will disqualify learner and novice drivers for six months. Steer clear of points and stay on the road. A message from the Road Safety Authority.